Discover new mind and body hacks to thrive as a human today. The Institute for Aliveness is here to teach you all the things you never learned in school. From talking poop, sex, childhood trauma, emotional intelligence, psychedelics, and of course, fasting and food. This is a podcast that changes lives. Join your host, Dr. Andrea Page, as she travels seven continents to find the most captivating, impactful humans for you. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to welcome you to a new season of the podcast. This season, I bring you some of the most important embodied people in my life. From all over the world, people I've met along my journey, I thought, hey, why not share them with the world? All right, everyone, strap on your intellectual caps for this one. I have invited onto the show uh, the most influential professor in my life and someone who spurred me into massive change at the young age of 20. And so, yeah, here forth, we have a little more intellectual of a conversation than we do in the rest of the series. So stay with it. Keep your computer out in case you want to research or look up several of the resources mentioned. And uh, listen in to hear a professor's hero's journey, the making of one who starts to care about what's real in the world, perhaps starts to look a little deeper into the ingredients that make up this recipe of the world in which we live. And if you have a hopelessness or despair, there is some advice in there uh, and examples of things you can do to become an activist that actually creates change and plants seeds for the future. So tune on in to this podcast with Joel Wainwright. And I'm super, super, super excited to have you here with my audience. Um, So I'll just give... I'll give everyone a little uh, intro to bring them into where we are. Um, we are here on phone. Joel is currently in Columbus, Ohio at The Ohio State University. Hi, everyone. And I am here <laughs> on the seaside in Odessa, Ukraine. Um, and this is the season of the podcast where I invite the people who have had the biggest influence on my life to oh, speak okay. with all of you and so um, and me. And so we're just going to hang out. And there are a few things that I definitely want to talk about with Joel, but we'll see where it goes. Okay. So just to give you context uh, for anyone listening, I first met Joel more than a decade ago when I was in his class in undergrad. Uh, and the class was called The Making of the Modern World. And it was about the development of the world that we knew then 10 years ago. And it's, it's transformed even more now. Uh, and yet <laughs> this is a world that is a world let's say, dominated by global capitalism, a world that is on the brink of perhaps self-destruction in terms of the human race, at least. And um, it's a world that when you start to pull back the first uh, layer and and lift a little bit of the perception of what you've been told or how you've been told to see the world, uh, you can start to see things as they really are, um, or perhaps as we can guess they might be. and that's not always how we were told. And so it was a it was a very influential time in my life. Um, it's one in which I decided that I could no longer really serve on the global stage uh, because anything I would do would be purporting global capitalism, something that I inherently did not believe in. Mm. Um, and so that really in the, the class with Joel, everyone was really what sprung me into the 10 year career of um, health and wellness because it was my way to off road, mm. if you will. Now, Andy, and let so, me interrupt. Yeah. Hold on one second now. <laughs> that that much that you've just said was not clear to you at the time or when you graduated. Oh, no, it was. 
I mean, it was, it was. It okay. Was. Oh yeah. Oh, I definitely knew that it, that your class. I was like, oh. No, no, okay, no, well, no. I'm but I mean, be a diplomat. <laughs> well, regardless of regardless of the class, I mean, do you feel okay? Let me put it slightly differently. Imagine that you were um, the person you were at the time of graduation. How do you think you would have explained to people then where you thought you were going and, and why you were going that way? Oh, yeah. Well, I I mean, I knew from like a year later when I had gone to India for the first time uh-huh. and, and had a, the, a spiritual awakening, for want of a better phrase, right. that uh, the next decade of my life would be studying the parallel spheres of the human body and the earth body. Very good. Um, okay, that kind that of makes, starting from ground up. That 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 totally conforms to my memory, too, because I, <laughs> I, I, I say this because, first of all, I. I spend a lot of time talking with impressionable young people who are not as articulate as you are and who have a deep intuitive sense that the world is not organized in a way that uh, reaffirms what's important to them. On the contrary, mm-hmm. it seems abusive or violent or unequal and, and uh, destructive. And of course, it is all those things right now. And so they are trying in in some fashion or another to figure out where they're going. And it's rare that a student or a person when they're 20 or 21 will be able to speak as you just were. And I remember that you were, you know, a very articulate and conscious person at that time. But I kind of had the feeling like maybe some of these things didn't really click or come together in a a way for a year or two after that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, sorry, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I was just trying to remember... (laughs) Yeah, no, and it's brilliant. I mean, it brings up the question of like, wow, you know, there's this middle generation between the millennials and the Generation Z, or it's like the the fringe, kind of those on the brink. It's a big jump. It's a big jump. Yeah, yeah, who who could be disempowered, you know, because they didn't necessarily grow up with the iPhone. They weren't born with it in their hand, and they also weren't born into reinventing this new wave of entrepreneurialism. So they're in the middle, like, well, what are we supposed to do? That's right. That's right. And some of the answers that were given to my generation were clearly inadequate, but they were different again by the time that you were coming up through school. I mean, I, my sense, to make a huge generalization, is that um, <laughs> your people who are like 10 years out of college were not as trapped by anxiety as most young people are today. There's mm-hmm. a tremendous, just a tremendous amount of kind of anxiety and among the young today. And it's very hard because then instead of feeling excited and creative, like, uh, you know, the neoliberal entrepreneurial subject, they feel beaten down and confused and, and silenced. And that's a harder place in a way to begin from. Mm-hmm. But sure. I think I, I may have derailed your whole, your whole plan, because I think you were giving a preamble, and I asked a clarification question. So let's, let's go back to your Joel, my plan is the no plan plan. My plan is the I'm all with so that. Wrong. All right, good. No plan. <laughs> so, so what's the next stop on the no plan plan? So the, the next step on this no plan. So, plan Andy, road. maybe I could ask you a question now. <laughs> why, Go ahead. why, why is the world in such a state it's in today? Oh, 
because we're at the end of Kali Yuga. If that's not okay. a spiritual bypass, I don't know what is. But like, it's it's just okay. this is the time uh, where we have to wake up. You know, if things were really, if it was like this even keel slope, you know, nice and slow and steady in transformation of the human species, right. then we wouldn't notice that we were transforming. That's but right. Because it's this arrow being pulled back right before being shot off and you know, sent forward. It's this massive Donald Trump is president, right? right? So many countries are in threat of the sea levels rising. Our temperatures are off the charts from where they've ever been high and low before. And like, let's not forget <laughs> the six math extinction. Now, yes. it used to be that in the 19th century, which was another time of great upheaval, there was an idea which was core to the modern world mm -hmm. uh, that, that helped give people some understanding of what was going on. And it was the secular notion of progress. And it seems to me that these days progress is not working for people. I mean, as an idea to hang your hat on, but then uh, neither is the alternative that's being touted these days, which is adaptation, mm -hmm. right? We're all being told that, you know, in the face of radical climate change and species loss and the concerns uh, that people have all over the world about good jobs for people in the future, that what's needed is social adaptation. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that's not going to work either i mean it it is something that we say we we certainly say things like because there are many people who are at risk of climate change that there should be social adaptation but the concept it seems to me comes from biology and it it makes sense in let's say the context of darwinian evolution if we're talking about uh, a given species adaptation to a given environment but if we start mm -hmm. talking about human beings adapting then we we forget that although we are emphatically part of nature and eco ecosystems as much as anything else, uh, we also are political beings. Mm. And adaptation is therefore another attempt to smuggle in a biological idea through common sense language into what into our thinking. When in fact what we need today is not adaptation, unless adaptation means changing the very organization of human life on the planet, which is what we desperately need. Yeah. I think the other, yeah. So is that, so how does that, how do we square that with, I, I, I didn't catch the name, the age of. Oh, Kali Yuga. Could you spell that for me? Kali, K-A-L-I. She is the goddess of destruction. I remember Kali, yeah. Yeah, and then the Yuga is the age. They're just, uh. Just like the Mayan calendar, which you know right. a lot about, it is a there are times that have been outlined through history, and these could be ages uh, in planetary alignments. Often, I it see. all stems back to that. And of course, 2020 next year, we're having three major planetary alignments of almost all the outer out, outer planets: Jupiter, Uranus, Pluto, etc. And so, okay, so that's here's yeah. a knife. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, do you have a particular? way of explaining the relationship between the alignments of those planets and the changes that human societies go through? Um, so correlation would mm -hmm. be the easiest way to look up any major war or, you know, human travesty or struggle or any potent happening upon Earth throughout okay. history. And then you'll see the planetary alignments at that time. And I mean, it's, it's super esoteric. My, my audience is pretty used to me talking about the science of astrology, but it is. I, it I don't. Is, I don't, I'm not I'm I'm not on your show to question it. I'm just trying to understand what. So, do you remember um, reading the philosopher Karatani Kojin's work in our class? Of course. Joel, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be offensive. I'm just checking. 
I'm just all, I'm name I'm name checking for your audience, Andy. Um, oh so, yes. So after you took that class, Karatani wrote two books, um, mm-hmm. which. Uh, that's right. Uh, actually, no. Uh, Trans critique was. I'm sorry to interrupt. Trans critique was written before you took my class, and then oh. and what happened is that he wrote a paper um, after Trans critique, uh, which was intended to outline his his next big theoretical move, and that's where he introduced the concept of modes of exchange. And that paper was published in a journal called Rethinking Marxism. Well, after that paper came out, and which I assigned for many years in that class. He published yeah. a he published a book length version of the argument, and the book is called Structure of World History. Now, mm. stru- Structure of World History is, I think, a must read uh, for people who are interested in the idea of cyclical change, because mm. uh, so to put it mildly, um, in the secular academic world, the idea of cyclical changes of the sort that are very popular all over the world in folk and mythic explanations of things. Are, mm-hmm. are 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 looked at as sort of ridiculous, and partly that's because um, of what we might call the mechanism or causal problem. You know, people say, "Well, you've got a correlation that's very interesting, but how do you explain it?" Um, mm-hmm. But there's there's another part of it too, which is that if we're honest, most of the uh, secular or liberal academic world is uh, basically still within a liberal framework that emphasizes those concepts like progress and adaptation that we were talking about before. And mm-hmm. the, prob- the problem is they're not holding up too well, and they're very poor guides to life, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. So Karatani comes along in Structural World History, Andy, and he takes his ideas of modes of exchange and uses them to explain cycles of political and economic history in a way that seems to, uh, for many people, conform to what we might call their um, intuitive notions that uh, history repeats. It doesn't repeat exactly the same way, of course, but what repeats is a structure, a structure mm-hmm. of human relations on the earth. And so uh, his argument is that uh, essentially human societies in the modern era have gone through a 60-year cycle, uh, whereby at the end of every cycle you have a destructive phase or a revolutionary phase in which basically power gets sorted back out. So the last major peak of this cycle was in 1968, when we had mm. global global upheaval. And so his argument is that coming into the 2020s, we're we're due for another big one. If you go back 60 years prior to 68, you have 1918, which, of course, was uh, uh, the year after the Russian Revolution. And uh, we're at that point now eight years into the Mexican Revolution. There are many other important revolutions around the world that uh, come out of those. So and the, 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 the point is you might want to check out the book because it um, there's nothing in there about planets aligning, but he does imply that uh it ultimately what drives this cycle is not just capitalism although that's a big part of it but mm-hmm. also also human relations with the earth uh mm-hmm. because and it's it's pretty easy to see how uh those two can come together in any number of ways so i, I recommend it to you but now again yeah. i've interrupted you from your initial preambles <laughs> no, i love it i love it we're never gonna have enough time so okay well a you just give me a sign okay, okay. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I mean, all of this is fantastic and there's so much, so much that I want to follow up on. And a lot of this might be a bit heady for the audience. What I want to dive into is the, is the personal, if you'll let me. Um, Of course, whatever. I'm at your disposal. uh Uh-huh. So I, I would love to start where I normally start with guests, which is to 
really ask you to share your own becoming and um, what it is that made you you. Where where did your journey start and where did it lead you and what were the points along the way that that allowed you to develop into who you are today? You know, you've, you've put me in a double bind, Andy, because on one mm. hand, I really want to answer your questions as honestly as I can. But on the other hand, I have to confess that I have never been um, particularly insightful or self-aware on these sorts of questions. And mm -hmm. so I'm afraid that compared to your average listener, what I have to say might seem <laughs> extremely boring or uh, unenlightening. But uh, for what it's worth, here, here, here's a short version of the answers. I was raised us, in. Yeah, yeah I was. Hero's so, journey. So, OK, my, I don't have a, I don't have I'm no hero. Yes, you, you oh, OK. Know. Well, you're very kind. Well. At any rate, I uh, was born uh, in, oh, I was raised in Minnesota, outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, in a uh, working class suburb of St. Paul, uh, almost entirely white community. My dad worked in a steel mill. My mom was a high school teacher, so it was a solidly work, uh, middle class existence. And uh, my parents voted for uh, Republicans, so it was a Republican household. I was raised a Lutheran, so I spent many years going to church and several years of Bible study as well. So... Uh, you know, in, in most respects, I was a very conservative, it was a con conservative upbringing, let's say, although certainly not fanatically so. And um, my parents, uh, I don't think, I don't think either one of them identifies with the Republican Party anymore. But that's not saying a whole lot because it's changed a lot over the years. So, but uh, I, so my point is that I, I was not raised a liberal, I was raised a kind of a conservative person. Uh, and the turning point that led me to really question how the world works was the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which occurred, as you may recall, in 1991. That was my senior high school. At that time, I was uh, a strenuous supporter of the then president, George Herbert Walker Bush, who died last year. In fact, my first political activity was campaigning for Bob Dole when he ran for the Republican primary in 1988. Wow. Uh, so in 1991, when uh, the U.S. invaded Iraq, um, the idea was ostensibly to drive Iraq out of Kuwait, but of course it went deeper than that. And anyone who really had any awareness of what the geopolitics surrounding that war would have would have quickly learned if they did a little research that there was more to it than just trying to do good to the Kuwaiti people. And so, um, so then the question becomes, well, why would I have bothered thinking about that stuff? And I think that a big part of it was that and in those days, uh, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, a lot of us were listening to hip-hop music and, and punk rock music. And so I, for some reason or another, was kind of turned on to, uh, you know, go to punk rock shows and go to hip-hop shows. And because of the latter, I decided one day in the summer after my high school graduation to go to a rally against police violence in downtown Minneapolis. And so I took the bus and I remember standing on the street corner in the middle of downtown Minneapolis with a bunch of people I had never met who I didn't know. And some of them were giving speeches about police violence in our city, which was something, of course, I had never experienced as a privileged white kid growing up in the suburb. And to make a long story short, I was kind of uh, knocked back, didn't know what to make of what I was hearing. And so I pulled someone aside at one point and I basically said, where can I go to get more information? And they handed me a flyer that sent me to a uh, independent bookstore in Minneapolis. And I walked there directly after the protest. And I walked down into this bookstore, which I years later went on to volunteer at. And I met an elderly gentleman there. 
and uh, explained to him that, you know, I was looking for some books to explain some things to me, like, you know, what was the war in Iraq really about? And what's all this going on about police violence? And what does it have to do with racism and slavery and this and that? And he sized me up and realized I was a really naive young, young kid. Mm. And he suggested that I start someplace else. And he handed me a book of lectures by Noam Chomsky on U.S. foreign policy <laughs> and Latin America. Which I immediately mm. said, you know, something like, no, 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 I'm sorry, sir, you, you don't understand. That's, I, I, you know, I, 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 I was smart enough to know that he had made a mistake, you know. I was like, no, you don't understand. That's not what I asked for. And he said in so many words, he was like, trust me, kid, that's what you want to read. And <laughs> so I bought the book. And I read, I read about the first third of it on the bus on the way home. And I still remember sitting on the bus and reading about U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. And, and that person whose name was Earl, he's passed away now, wonderful mm. gentleman. He was right. I mean, the thing is that, in a sense, as you know, as you know well, uh, Andy, it, it doesn't really matter where one begins stepping back and trying to understand how the world is put together. When you, but once you start to ask hard questions yourself, then it will all unfold from there if you have the courage and the patience to keep going. But then the, the question becomes, uh, why would why would someone begin in the first place? And in my, in my case, that entry point you could say was, well, I, I walked into the right bookstore and I encountered the right wise man who figured out, okay, if this guy looks like the kind of person I think he is, then Chomsky and Latin America is going to work. And boy, was he right. And by the mm -hmm. way, since, since then, Chomsky is one of my heroes and we've had the opportunity to interact four or five times over the years. And he's a kind of an unbelievably generous person with his time in supporting mm -hmm. the progress of young minds and uh, has been a strong supporter of me personally over the years. So just want to tip my hat to know but but coming back to and i and as you know i've been working in latin america for 25 years now so mm -hmm. you, even that funny little starting point of like being handed a book about latin america might have might have made a big difference where that led me but then the question still the question we always have to come back to andy is but how would someone ever be in a place where they were ready to ask for help to find something to read about such fundamental question and mm -hmm. uh the honest truth is I have no idea why I was ready, but you could see from the speculations I offered that had something to do with music and the war, but I, I really I really don't know. And I think about that a lot because, as you know, every year I teach between 150 and 200 students here at Ohio State University, and the students who come into my classes, uh, some of them are genuinely excited and prepared to, as you were, think hard about the way the world is put together and where they fit in it. Uh, but many of them are not really interested in doing that sort of work. And if if they're not ready and they're not interested, then there's only so much you can do as a teacher. I mean, you can give them assignments and you can grade the assignments. You can walk them through the mechanics, but that's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. They, If I were to use romantic language, I would say something like they have to open their hearts and be ready to write poetry. And if they're not, then there's no point in trying to use grades or credits or disciplinary measures to compel them. It, it won't work. And so then so then the question becomes, is there really anything a professor at a modern secular university can do to set the stage and to warm people up, so to speak, so that they might be more inclined to be ready? And uh, I really... I've given that question a lot of thought, and I don't really have any good answers. Well, how I about think we you, can... Andy? How about you? Wait, wait, wait. 
Okay. We can take evidence. We can take evidence of this. I am mm. very clear, very, very yes. clinical evidence True, of but your ability to impact. Well, that's <laughs> right. But my response to that would be to say that there is um, the phenomenon of self-selection. So you signed up for a class called The Making of the Modern World. And from day one, when you came into that class, you were more than ready to ask the hard questions. So the student, mm. the student like you who comes into my classroom will always be a joy to work with. But mm -hmm. as you also know, most of your peers at Ohio State were not like you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, and so for the kinds of changes we're fighting for in the world, part of it is about, uh, to use a metaphor that's popular in indigenous political circles that I move in, you know, it's the one warrior at a time mindset of find who's ready to take the next step and work with them closely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense in that setting. But uh, on the other hand, this is a mass education environment I work in, you know, 150 to 250 students a year. I don't have the luxury of being able to work with each warrior. And so if a lot of your peers were not where you were when you came into my classroom at that time, that's probably still true today. And so that's the part I struggle with is how to lay that. I don't know what to call it. It's not a framework. It's more how to open the door in a way that makes more people feel enthusiastic about what could happen. But yeah, you see what I I'm mean, getting at? Yeah, 100%. And this is what we were kind of bridging towards uh, in talking in person in Ohio a month ago. Mm. It, it, Has it, it been a it, month already? Yeah, just about, I think, three, three and a half weeks, something like that. But it, well, what it okay, is, sorry is to interrupt you. Okay. <laughs> the pedagogy of transformation. And right, that's, that's right. what I've been working on largely for the past several years. Well, um, so you're, so you're ready to tell me the answer. Well, I mean, the answer is something that something that's given me solace and something yes. that has worked. And okay. that is the idea of planting seeds, right? Everything okay. comes back to, to the cycles, right? These cycles yes. of the earth which are the truth and we humans right. are a part of, and yet our minds separate us and create all these political structures. Right. And uh, so the cycles of the earth, the, the planting mm. of seeds, the sowing of seeds, that giving birth to something that will take time to grow and right. might be hard headed or might have a shell on it and right. might need lots of time to germinate, right? But a decade later, they'll That's start right. to sprout. And it could have been that one thing in their booze infused time in undergrad, <laughs> right? Where they were in Joel Wainwright's class and they Maybe. heard this one idea. I hope so. And then when it came back, you know, then yeah. then they started to sprout. And so I don't think mm. that you need to be so mm. attached to to seeing the fruits of, of your labor immediately, okay. but rather trusting that um, it's not about teaching them what to think, but teaching them how to think. Yeah, well, that's that's very that's very uh, that's a very generous interpretation, and I I like the planting seeds metaphor a lot. So I wrote that down. <laughs> I uh, I have that here in front of me. Um, but um, you know, I I think so. Let me share with you something that um, faculty talk about, um, mm -hmm. which which is related to this, which is mm -hmm. that you you'll often hear um, people say things like. I wish I was at another school where the students were more passionate or interested or creative or mm -hmm. excited about this sort of thing, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And usually it seems to me that what that really amounts to is wishing that they w were privileged enough to teach at a very small elite private college mm -hmm. where, where the students have the privilege of coming in with money and expecting that 
you know, they'll have money some way or another when it's all over. Mm-hmm. And and where college is essentially a kind of four-year finishing school where you become really exceptionally bright and a terrific writer and fluent in three foreign languages and so forth and so on. And by contrast, it's very rare that you hear people like me say, boy, you know, I really wish I taught six classes a year at a community college so I could be working with underprivileged people and really giving them these incredible opportunities to explore the way the world works. It happens. Mm -hmm. I know some people who have done it. I have a good friend who left a private college to go teach at a public uh, community college. Next question. Okay. Well, uh, you know, you stopped kind of with Earl in the bookstore in, oh, yeah. in the story of your own hero's journey and reading Noam Chomsky. But like, where did that take you? What were your next steps? Can you tell us about everything oh, leading okay. up to the Fulbright and beyond? Oh, Lord of mercy. It's it's so, <laughs> it's pretty conventional. I mean, I'm happy to go through it, but it's, it's, so, it's so conventional in a way. I mean, I went to college. I thought I was going to be an engineer. Uh, that year was a big year of transition for me. I decided, no, I don't really want to do engineering. I took... I took a course um, taught by a terrific professor named Steve Stamos on the environment society. And it got me to think really deeply about human relations with the environment and Mm. how it connects to politics and economics. And so I decided I wasn't going to be an engineer and I was going to do something with environment. And then one thing led to another and I had some more great teachers and that led me to have the opportunity to go abroad. And I spent time studying colonialism and environmental issues and development in in two former British colonies, Belize and Central America and Kenya and East Africa. And so by the time I graduated and at, along with that, I, I flipped essentially from being a, a conservative minded young Republican type to being a radical. And so I got involved in radical political organizing on campus. And along with my my then partner in college, a woman named Amanda Suar, who's now a, a gender studies professor at University of Washington mm-hmm. uh, and a great scholar activist uh, in her own right, just a, a terrific person. Um, we we really, I think, I, I mean, to say without without any false modesty, we were kind of the, the, the young people who were anchoring the left organizing on campus for a couple of years where we went to college and did, spent a huge amount of time doing things like trying to get people to undergo some sort of pedagogy of transformation, to use the expression used before, uh, mm-hmm. most, mostly failing, but we had some great experiences and I think we learned a lot along the way. And mm-hmm. so then uh, by the time my senior year rolled around, though I, I knew that I really wanted to spend more time um, working alongside groups of people in struggle, but outside of the United States, because I had learned a lot of lessons working in the US and I, I was enthusiastic to spread my wings a bit. And I was fortunate to receive a Fulbright and to go back to Belize for a year. And when I arrived, there was a major struggle going on between the indigenous communities of southern Belize, the Mopan and Kikchi Maya speaking people, who were fighting with the government in an immediate sense over some massive logging concessions that had been granted by the government of Belize to multinational firms that were in classic fashion going to plunder the rainforest, cut down the valuable hardwoods and leave the local people with very little. Uh, But more generally, the struggle was about the dignity of those communities and the long struggle to decolonize themselves and to regain autonomy vis-a-vis the state and capital. And the leader of the movement at the time was a man named Julian Cho, who was a school teacher and an activist and organizer. And he and I became very close and he took me under his wing and I was his right-hand man for uh, the next year and a half or so. 
until he was until he died. He was he was killed in uh, 1998 in November, shortly uh, a few years after we met. So uh, working with Julian was a very important chapter of my life. And uh, after a period of time when I stayed away from Belize because of the sadness that I uh, felt uh because it wasn't just that Julian died. Candidly, the movement really fell apart for a couple of years. Um, I think a lot of people were very afraid of what might happen to them if they tried to step up and replace Julian as the leader. Uh, but after a few years, um, uh, several of Julian's family members, uh, in-laws, and close friends who he used to work with uh, came together, uh, and uh, we built an organization, which we named after our late friend, the Julian Cho Society. And uh, for about five years, I worked very closely with the Julian Cho Society, and in particular with a young woman named Christina Koch, who's still very close to me. And um, we worked very hard to try and get the the movement back on its feet, and I think we had a lot of great successes. And after a certain point, uh, I had to step away from the Julian Cho Society because it essentially became part of the formal body that leads the movement or leads the communities, I should say, which is called the Maya Leaders Alliance. And uh, I'm not Maya, so it would have been inappropriate for me to be in a leadership position on that group. Uh, But I've continued to remain very closely involved uh, in a whole number of ways with the indigenous communities of southern Belize and um, go back rather frequently, around twice a year, I I go back. And and so that for me, uh, to come back to our earlier line of questions, Andy, is a big part of the question of why I haven't gotten burned out like many of my peers, uh, mm-hmm. even, the, even though I might be motivated by a pedagogy of transformation. Uh, the truth of the matter, as you know, is that you know the average student in Ohio State is not necessarily looking for that in a GE credit course. That's general mm-hmm. ed. They might just be looking to get some credits so they can get closer to graduation. And I understand that. So um, to, avoid, to avoid burning out, I have found it to be very important to maintain another side of my life which is very separate and autonomous from this existence as a professor which from which i draw strength and and meaning and for me above all that has meant my work in belize um where in many ways what i do when i'm there now isn't that different than what i do here i spend a lot of time listening and talking with people and teaching and uh reading and and thinking and writing uh but it's just a completely different setting and a completely different set of problems. And most importantly, it's not to get credit to someone to graduate, but simply to confront the problems of the world in a very concrete situation that I've come to know very well. And so it's it's been, it's been very satisfying. But also, as you know, uh, we've talked about this before, uh, part of what makes that so rewarding is precisely the fact that Anytime someone is working intimately and in a meaningful long-term way with communities that have experienced colonialism or any sort of uh, oppression and have sur- survived and found ways to thrive, uh, that, that one is exposed to forms of, of dignity and enthusiasm, sometimes even revolutionary enthusiasm, that one is rarely able to encounter inside the U.S. today. And so it, mm-hmm. it, it fires you up and it makes you feel like there's a bigger struggle and a bigger story. And so you're able to kind of forget about your little problems, which is really, really important. 
the bigger picture. <laughs> yes, for sure. And I mean, that's what travel gives, right? Whether you're mm-hmm. doing activist work with mm-hmm. indigenous people or not, that it gives you that bigger exactly. perspective of True. the fact that other people live different lives and, and you step outside of your mind and the monotony of being you and, right. and your problems every day. And, well, it, it, it travel should do that. Uh, travel can be a wonderful way of dislocating yourself. I agree. But wouldn't wouldn't you say, Andy, that unfortunately, um, when when most Americans, for instance, get on a plane and go to Cancun, Mexico, that's not really what they're doing. Right. Right. Yeah. Inst- instead sure. of instead of opening up their mind and saying, "Hey, I'll go uh, hop on a public bus and go to uh, Valladolid or Chichen Itza and, and and just hang out and see what see what comes my way," uh, instead they drink on the beach and you know it's kind of so so there's travel. But then if one is going to experience the dislocation in a way that opens up new ways of thinking, it typically involves uh, homework or fieldwork, too. Like you have to think about why you're doing what you're doing and you have to read and you have to. Well, you don't have to, but it certainly helps to read novels and read history books and uh, to talk with people about the things that you're learning and to Mm -hmm. take notes in a notebook and reflect upon what you're learning and to take Mm -hmm. the opportunity of being away from your ordinary life to reflect deeply upon why you are doing what you're doing back home when you're there. Uh, so, but, but all your, all your, anyone listening to this already knows that I'm sure. I mean, I'm probably preaching to the converted. Yes. And you've just answered my last question, which is really <laughs> what, <laughs> what to advise to those listening who want to start to make an impact in the world. So you've made book recommendations. You've definitely dropped sure. uh, Noam Chomsky's name. If anyone hasn't heard of him, I'm sure there's lots of podcasts and easy ways to start to wrap your mind around the ideas that he puts forth. Sure. Um, and Joel, if anyone wants to find out more about you or catch up more with you, where should they look? You and don't forget, but go. don't forget, yeah, don't forget also uh, the, the book I mentioned earlier by Karatani Kojin is called Structure of World History, and that was published by Duke University Press, I believe, in 2014. Excellent book. 
Got it. Got it. Joel, thank you so much. I'm giving My you pleasure, a Andy. Oh, I appreciate it. <laughs> Always a pleasure, I Andy. You. I miss Have you too. Day. Yeah, be well. Thanks for uh, <laughs> keeping us the time too. Take care. Yes. Bye. I was listening to that for you. If you learned from or moved by the episode, pay it forward. Go to Apple now and leave a five-star review so others can benefit. Join the Institute for Aliveness for a one-week transformational fasting experience. Consider getting an astrology reading from Andy or enroll in the one-year health coach certification course. Whatever you do, don't let this learning pass you by. Do something now to impact your lifestyle for good. Here we are.